Chapter Eight, Part C, of the Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume One, by Giacomo Casanova. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit librivox.org. Recording by J. C. Guan. The Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume One, The Venetian Years, by Giacomo Casanova. Episode Two. Cleric in Naples, Chapter Eight, Part C. An hour after I had left Castel Nuovo, the atmosphere being calm and the sky clear, I perceived on my right, and within ten paces of me, a pyramidal flame about two feet long and four or five feet above the ground. This apparition surprised me, because it seemed to accompany me. Anxious to examine it. I endeavoured to get nearer to it, but the more I advanced towards it, the further it went from me. It would stop when I stood still, and when the road along which I was travelling happened to be lined with trees, I no longer saw it. But it was sure to reappear as soon as I reached a portion of the road without trees. I several times retraced my steps purposely, but every time I did so. The flame disappeared, and would not show itself again until I proceeded towards Rome. This extraordinary beacon left me when daylight chased darkness from the sky. What a splendid field for ignorant superstition! If there had been any witnesses to that phenomenon, and if I had chanced to make a great name in Rome, history is full of such trifles, and the world is full of people who attach great importance to them. In spite of the so-called light of science, I must candidly confess that, although somewhat versed in physics, the sight of that small meteor gave me singular ideas. But I was prudent enough not to mention the circumstance to any one. When I reached the ancient capital of the world, I possessed only seven paoli, and consequently, I did not loiter about. I paid no attention to the splendid entrance. Through the gate of the polar trees, which is by mistake pompously called of the people, or to the beautiful square of the same name, or to the portals of the magnificent churches, or to all the stately buildings, which generally strike the traveller as he enters the city, I went straight towards Monte Magnanopoli, where, according to the address given to me, I was to find the bishop. There, I was informed. That he had left Rome ten days before, leaving instructions to send me to Naples free of expense. A coach was to start for Naples the next day. Not caring to see Rome, I went to bed until the time for the departure of the coach. I travelled with three low fellows to whom I did not address one word through the whole of the journey. I entered Naples on the sixth day of September. I went immediately. To the address which had been given to me in Rome, the bishop was not there. I called at the convent of the Minims, and I found that he had left Naples to proceed to Martorano. I inquired whether he had left any instructions for me, but in vain. No one could give me any information. And there I was, alone in a large city, without a friend, with eight carlini in my pocket. And not knowing what to do. But never mind.
Fate calls me to Martorano, and to Martorano I must go. The distance, after all, is only two hundred miles. I found several drivers starting for Consenza, but when they heard that I had no luggage, they refused to take me, unless I paid in advance. They were quite right, but their prudence placed me under the necessity of going on foot. Yet I felt I must reach Martorano, and I made up my mind to walk the distance, begging food and lodging like the very reverend Bardo Stefano. First of all, I made a light meal for one-fourth of my money, and having been informed that I had to follow the Salerno road, I went towards Portici, where I arrived in an hour and a half. I already felt rather fatigued. My legs, if not my head, took me to an inn, where I ordered a room and some supper. I was served in good style. My appetite was excellent, and I passed a quiet ride in a comfortable bed. In the morning, I told the innkeeper that I would return for my dinner, and went out to visit the royal palace. As I passed through the gate, I was met by a man of prepossessing appearance, dressed in the eastern fashion, who offered to show me all over the place, saying that I would thus save my money. I was in a position to accept any offer. I thanked him for his kindness. Happening during the conversation to state that I was a Venetian, he told me that he was my subject, since he came from Zante. I acknowledge his polite compliment with a reverence. I have, he said, some very excellent muscatel wine, grown in the East, which I could sell you cheap. I might buy some, but I warn you, I am a good judge. So much the better. Which do you prefer? The Serrigo wine. You are right. I have some rare Serrigo muscatel, and we can taste it if you have no objection to dine with me. Known whatsoever. I can likewise give you the wines of Samos and Cephalonia. I have also a quantity of minerals, plenty of vitriol, cinnabar, antimony, and one hundred kindles of mercury. Are all these goods here? No, they are in Naples. Here I have only the muscatel wine and the mercury. It is quite naturally, and without any intention to deceive, that a young man accustomed to poverty, and ashamed of it when he speaks to a rich stranger, boasts of his means, of his fortune. As I was talking with my new acquaintance, I recollected an amalgam of mercury with lead and bismuth, by which the mercury increases one-fourth in weight. I said nothing, but I besought myself that if the mystery should be unknown to the Greek, I might profit by it. I felt that some cunning was necessary, and that he would not care for my secret if I proposed to sell it to him without preparing the way. The best plan was to astonish my man with the miracle of the augmentation of mercury, treat it as a jest, and see what his intentions would be. Cheating is a crime, but honest cunning may be considered as a species of prudence. True, it is a quality which is near akin to roguery, but that cannot be helped, and the man who, in time of need, does not know how to exercise his cunning nobly, is a fool. The Greeks call this sort of wisdom serdaleophion, from the word serdo, fox, 
and it might be translated by foxdom, if there was such a word in English. After we had visited the place, we returned to the inn, and the Greek took me to his room, in which he ordered the table to be laid for two. In the next room, I saw several large vessels of muscatel wine, and four flagons of mercury, each containing about ten pounds. My plans were laid out, and I asked him to let me have one of the flagons of mercury at the current price, and took it to my room. The Greek went out to attend to his business, reminding me that he expected me to dinner. I went out likewise, and bought two pounds and a half of lead, and an equal quantity of bismuth. The druggist had no more. When I came back to the inn, asked for some large empty bottles, and made the amalgam. We dined very pleasantly, and the Greek was delighted, because I pronounced his serigo excellent. In the course of conversation, he inquired laughingly why I had bought one of his flagons of mercury. "'You can find out if you come to my room,' I said. After dinner, we repaired to my room, and he found his mercury divided in two vessels. I asked for a piece of chamois, strained the liquid through it, filled his own flagon, and the Greek stood astonished at the sight of the fine mercury, about one-fourth of a flagon, which remained over, with an equal quantity of a powder unknown to him. It was the bismuth. My merry laugh kept company with his astonishment, and calling one of the servants of the inn, I sent him to the druggist to sell the mercury that was left. He returned in a few minutes, and handed me fifteen carlini. The Greek, whose surprise was complete, asked me to give him back his own flagon, which was there quite full, and worth sixty carlini. I handed it to him with a smile, thanking him for the opportunity he had afforded me of earning fifteen carlini, and took care to add that I should leave for Salerno early the next morning. Then we must have supper to-night this evening, he said. During the afternoon we took a walk towards Mount Vesuvius. Our conversation went from one subject to another, but no allusion was made to the mercury, though I could see that the Greek had something on his mind. At supper he told me, jestingly, that I ought to stop in Portici the next day to make forty-five carlini out of the three other flagons of mercury. I answered gravely that I did not want the money, and that I had augmented the first flagon only for the sake of procuring him an agreeable surprise. But, he said, you must be very wealthy. No, I am not, because I am in search of the secret of the augmentation of gold, and it is a very expensive study for us. How many are there in your company? Only my uncle and myself. What do you want to augment gold for? The augmentation of mercury ought to be enough for you. Pray tell me whether the mercury augmented by you today is again susceptible of a similar increase. No, if it were so, it would be an immense source of wealth for us. I am much pleased with your sincerity. Supper over, I paid my bill, and asked the landlord to get me a carriage and pair of horses to take me to Salerno early the next morning. 
I thanked the Greek for his delicious muscatel wine, and, requesting his address in Naples, I assured him that he would see me within a fortnight, as I was determined to secure a cask of his serigo. We embraced each other, and I retired to bed well pleased with my day's work, and in no way astonished at the Greek's not offering to purchase my secret, for I was certain that he would not sleep for anxiety, and that I should see him early in the next morning. At all events, I had enough money to reach the Tour du Grec, and there Providence would take care of me. Yet it seemed to me very difficult to travel as far as Martorano, begging like a mendicant friar, because my outward appearance did not excite pity. People would feel interested in me only from a conviction that I needed nothing. A very unfortunate conviction, when the object of it is truly poor. As I had foreseen, the Greek was in my room at daybreak. I received him in a friendly way, saying that we could take coffee together. Willingly, but tell me, Reven Abbe, whether you would feel disposed to sell me your secret. Why not, when we meet in Naples? But why not now? I am expected in Salerno. Besides, I would only sell the secret for a large sum of money, and I am not acquainted with you. That does not matter, as I am sufficiently known here to pay you in cash. How much would you want? Two thousand ounces. I agree to pay you that sum, provided that I succeed in making the augmentation myself with such matter as you name to me, which I will purchase. It is impossible, because the necessary ingredients cannot be got here, but they are common enough in Naples. If it is any sort of metal, we can get it at the Tour du Grec. We could go there together. Can you tell me what is the expense of the augmentation? One and a half percent, but you are likewise known at the Tour du Grec, for I should not like to lose my time. Your doubts grieve me. Saying which, he took a pen, wrote a few words, and handed to me this order. At sight, pay to bearer the sum of fifty gold ounces, on account of Panagioti. He told me that the banker resided within two hundred yards of the inn, and he pressed me to go there myself. I did not stand upon ceremony, but went to the banker, who paid me the amount. I returned to my room, in which he was waiting for me, and placed the gold on the table, saying that we could now proceed together to the Tour du Grec, where we would complete our arrangements after the signature of a deed of agreement. The Greek had his own carriage and horses. He gave orders for them to be got ready, and we left the inn, but he had nobly insisted upon my taking possession of the fifty ounces. When we arrived at the Tour du Grec, he signed a document by which he promised to pay me two thousand ounces as soon as I should have discovered to him the process of augmenting mercury by one-fourth without injuring its quality, the amalgam to be equal to the mercury which I had sold in his presence at Portici. He then gave me a bill of exchange payable at sight in eight days, on Mr. Gennaro de Carlo. I told him that the ingredients were lead and bismuth. The first, 
combining with mercury, and the second, giving to the whole the perfect fluidity necessary to strain it through the chamois leather. The Greek went out to try the amalgam. I did not know where, and I dined alone, but toward evening he came back, looking very disconsolate, as I had expected. I have made the amalgam, he said, but the mercury is not perfect. It is equal to that which I have sold in Portici, and that is the very letter of your engagement. But my engagement says likewise, without injury to the quality. You must agree that the quality is injured, because it is no longer susceptible of further augmentation. You knew that to be the case. The point is its equality with the mercury I sold in Portici. But we shall have to go to law, and you will lose. I am sorry the secret should become public. Congratulate yourself, sir, for if you should gain the lawsuit, you will have obtained my secret for nothing. I would never have believed you capable of deceiving me in such a manner. Reverend sir, I can assure you that I would not willingly deceive any one. Do you know the secret, or do you not? Do you suppose I would have given it to you without the agreement we entered into? Well, there will be some fun over this affair in Naples, and the lawyers will make money out of it. But I am much grieved at this turn of affairs, and I am very sorry that I allowed myself to be so easily deceived by your fine talk. In the meantime, here are your fifty ounces. As I was taking the money out of my pocket, frightened to death lest he should accept it, he left the room, saying that he would not have it. He soon returned. We had supper in the same room, but at separate tables. War had been openly declared, but I felt certain that a treaty of peace would soon be signed. We did not exchange one word during the evening, but in the morning he came to me as I was getting ready to go. I again offered to return the money I received, but he told me to keep it, and proposed to give me fifty ounces more if I would give him back his bill of exchange for two thousand. We began to argue the matter quietly, and after two hours of discussion I gave in. I received fifty ounces more. We dined together like old friends, and embraced each other cordially. As I was bidding him adieu, he gave me an order on his house at Naples for a barrel of muscatel wine, and he presented me with a splendid box containing twelve razors with silver handles, manufactured in the Tour du Grec. We parted, the best friends in the world, and well pleased with each other. I remained two days in Salerno to provide myself with linen and other necessaries, possessing about one hundred sequins, and enjoying good health, I was very proud of my success, in which I could not see any cause to reproach to myself, for the cunning I had brought into play to ensure the sale of my secret could not be found fault with, except by the most intolerant of moralists, and such men have no authority to speak on matters of business. At all events, free, rich, and certain of presenting myself before the bishop with a respectable appearance, and not like a beggar, I soon recovered my natural spirits, and congratulated myself upon having brought sufficient experience 
to ensure me against falling a second time an easy prey to a father Corsini, to thieving gamblers, to mercenary women, and particularly to the impudent scoundrels who barefacedly praise so well those they intend to dupe, a species of knaves very common in the world, even amongst people who form what is called good society. I left Salerno with two priests who were going to Consenza, on business, and we traversed the distance of one hundred and forty-two miles in twenty-two hours. The day after my arrival in the capital of Calabria, I took a small carriage and drove to Martorano. During the journey, fixing my eyes upon the famous Mare Ausonum, I felt delighted at finding myself in the middle of Magna Grecia, rendered so celebrated for twenty-four centuries by its connection with Pythagoras. I looked with astonishment upon a country renowned for its fertility, and in which, in spite of nature's prodigality, my eyes met everywhere the aspect of terrible misery, the complete absence of that pleasant superfluity which helps man to enjoy life, and the degradation of the inhabitants sparsely scattered on a soil where they ought to be so numerous. I felt ashamed to acknowledge them as originating from the same stock as myself. Such is, however, the terra di lavoro, where labor seems to be execrated, where everything is cheap, where the miserable inhabitants consider that they have made a good bargain when they have found any one disposed to take care of the fruit which the ground supplies almost spontaneously in too great abundance, and for which there is no market. I felt compelled to admit the justice of the Romans, who had called them brutes instead of Boeotians. The good priest, with whom I had been travelling, laughed at my dread of the tarantula and of the crassidra, for the disease brought on by the bite of those insects appeared to me more fearful even than a certain disease with which I was already too well acquainted. They assured me that all the stories relating to those creatures were fables. They laughed at the lines which Virgil had devoted to them in the Georgics, as well as at all those I quoted to justify my fears. I found Bishop Bernard de Bernardis occupying a hard chair near an old table on which he was writing. I fell on my knees, as it is customary to do before a prelate, but instead of giving me his blessing, he raised me up from the floor, and, folding me in his arms, embraced me tenderly. He expressed his deep sorrow when I told him that in Naples I had not been able to find any instructions to enable me to join him. But his face lighted up again when I added that I was indebted to no one for money, and that I was in good health. He bade me take a seat, and with a heavy sigh he began to talk of his poverty, and ordered a servant to lay the cloths for three persons. Besides this servant, his lordship's suit consisted of a most devout-looking housekeeper, and of a priest whom I judged to be very ignorant from the few words he uttered during our meal. The house inhabited by his lordship was large, but badly built and poorly kept. The furniture was so miserable that, in order to make up a bed for me in the room adjoining his chamber, the poor bishop 
had to give up one of his two mattresses. His dinner, not to say any more about it, frightened me, for he was very strict in keeping the rules of his order, and this being a fast day, he did not eat any meat, and the oil was very bad. Nevertheless, Monsignor was an intelligent man, and, what is still better, an honest man. He told me, much to my surprise, that his bishopric, although not one of little importance, brought him only five hundred ducat di regno yearly, and that, unfortunately, he had contracted debts to the amount of six hundred. He added, with a sigh, that his only happiness was to feel himself out of the clutches of the monks, who had persecuted him, and made his life perfectly purgatory for fifteen years. All these confidences caused me sorrow and mortification, because they proved to me not only that I was not in the promised land where a mature could be picked up, but also that I would be a heavy charge for him. I felt that he was grieved himself at the sorry present his patronage seemed likely to prove. I inquired whether he had a good library, whether there were any literary men, or any good society in which one could spend a few agreeable hours. He smiled and answered that throughout his diocese there was not one man who could boast of writing decently, and still less of any taste or knowledge in literature, that there was not a single bookseller, nor any person caring even for the newspapers. But he promised me that we would follow our literary tastes together, as soon as he received the books he had ordered from Naples. That was all very well, but was this the place for a young man of eighteen to live in, without a good library, without good society, without emulation and literary intercourse? The good bishop, seeing me full of sad thoughts, and almost astounded at the prospect of the miserable life I should have to lead with him, tried to give me courage by promising to do everything in his power to secure my happiness. The next day, the bishop, having to officiate in his pontifical robes, I had an opportunity of seeing all the clergy, and all the faithful of the diocese, men and women, of whom the cathedral was full. The sight made me resolve at once to leave Martorano. I thought I was gazing upon a troop of brutes, for whom my external appearance was a cause of scandal. How ugly were the women! What a look of stupidity and coarseness in the men! When I returned to the bishop's house, I told the prelate that I did not feel in me the vocation to die within a few months a martyr in this miserable city. Give me your blessing, I said, and let me go, or rather, come with me. I promise you, that we shall make a fortune somewhere else. The proposal made him laugh repeatedly during the day. Had he agreed to it, he would not have died two years afterwards in the prime of manhood. The worthy man, feeling how natural was my repugnance, begged me to forgive him for having summoned me to him, and, considering it his duty to send me back to Venice, having no money himself, and not being aware that I had any, he told me that he would give me an introduction to a worthy citizen of Naples, 
who would lend me sixty ducati di regno to enable me to reach my native city. I accepted his offer with gratitude, and going to my room, I took out of my trunk the case of fine razors which the Greek had given me, and begged his acceptance of it as a souvenir of me. I had great difficulty in forcing it upon him, for it was worth the sixty ducats, and to conquer his resistance I had to threaten to remain with him if he refused my present. He gave me a very flattering letter of recommendation for the Archbishop of Cosenza, in which he requested him to forward me as far as Naples, without any expense to myself. It was thus I left Martorano, sixty hours after my arrival, pitying the bishop whom I was leaving behind, and who wept as he was pouring heartfelt blessings upon me. The Archbishop of Cosenza, a man of wealth and of intelligence, offered me a room in his palace. During the dinner I made, with an overflowing heart, the eulogy of the bishop of Martorano. But I railed mercilessly at his diocese, and at the whole of Calabria, in so cutting a manner, that I greatly amused the bishop and all his guests, among whom were two ladies, his relatives, who did the honours of the dinner-table. The youngest, however, objected to the satirical style in which I had depicted her country, and declared war against me. But I contrived to obtain peace again by telling her that Calabria would be a delightful country if one-fourth only of its inhabitants were like her. Perhaps it was the idea of proving to me that I had been wrong in my opinion that the archbishop gave on the following day a splendid supper. Cosenza is a city in which a gentleman can find plenty of amusement. The nobility are wealthy, the women are pretty, and men generally well informed, because they have been educated in Naples or in Rome. I left Cosenza on the third day with a letter from the archbishop for the far-famed Genovesi. I had five travelling companions, whom I judged from their appearance to be either pirates or banditti, and I took very good care not to let them see or guess that I had a well-filled purse. Likewise, I thought it prudent to go to bed without undressing during the whole journey, an excellent measure of prudence for a young man travelling in that part of the country. I reached Naples on the 16th of September, 1743, and I lost no time in presenting the letter of the Bishop of Martorano. It was addressed to a Mr. Gennaro Polo at St. Anne's, this excellent man, whose duty was only to give me the sum of sixty ducats, insisted, after perusing the bishop's letter, upon receiving me in his house, because he wished me to make the acquaintance of his son, who was a poet like myself. The bishop had represented my poetry as sublime. After the usual ceremonies, I accepted this kind invitation. My trunk was sent for, and I was a guest in the house of Mr. Gennaro Polo, End of chapter 8